This talk is supported by SmallPDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade, and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. The first trade-offs you're making when you're switching from a custom solution provider to a SaaS company is that the whole knowledge and the whole investment goes into the product, no longer in the client project, right? Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Adela, a very welcome to the Swiss Printer Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Pleasure to be here as well. Thank you for inviting me. You're the founder and CEO at AuraChain, a simple, intuitive, low-code platform that allows rapid creation of digital applications. Before we talk about your company, okay. I actually want to start with your personal background. Sure. You studied international business and economics at university, and legend has it that you were actually not at all interested in computer science back then. So what was it then that you were interested in? Oh, all right. Yes, by the time I was in college, uh, I still hated computer science. That's true, which was the case for high school as well. But I was very interested in uh, economics, in uh, finance and international negotiations. So I would say, in a sense, my interest has switched compared to the interest I used to have in high school. Um, I think it's also that time when I started to realize I could have, I, I was about to become a very outspoken person. So probably mm -hmm. if there was some small hint that I could be a leader, that's when it actually happened in, in, uh, in college. What were the hints? What were the signs? Well, so I grew up in, in communist Romania. So immediately after the 89, after the revolution came, I was amongst the first, um, I would say, cohort of students who were studying in a free country. But there was still a rule that 20 uh, students from the international business uh, relations, uh, which was the college where I went at the Romanian Academy of Economic Studies, had to study Russian. And I never wanted to study Russian. So they told me I was picked by, by chance by the computer. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, I was against it. Now, at the beginning, you know, I followed the rules, I applied, I said, look, I want to study English and German, that's clear for me. Uh, but they told me it's mandatory. So for six months, I actually fought hard to be transferred from Russian to, uh, to the German section. Mm -hmm. But they told me, look, you're going to study at the Pushkin Institute in St. Petersburg, like a few months every year. And I said, I'm still not interested. To get a long story short, I became some sort of a spokesman of all the students who wanted the transfer. And I still remember the last meeting with a dean, with a college dean, who told me, think about the possibility of reading Dostoevsky and, and Tolstoy in, in original. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm still not interested. So what do I need to do to get transferred? So I think I became very visible back then and uh, not necessarily in a good way because this made all the professors to think that I was way too outspoken for that those times. Again, remember, this was immediately post-communist Romania. But that was the first time when I felt I could actually represent other people. Well, and that takes a lot of courage to actually, you know, back then, speak up. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Especially since the message that was sent to me was like, "We know you're reading the classics, yeah. 
So think about the possibility to, to read them in original, which means they had that information. Wow. That was a message, actually. Absolutely. <laughs> but if you're familiar with communism, you understand what I'm trying to say right now. Uh, otherwise, it may just sound like a strange story. <laughs> <laughs> and then when did your interest in computer science come up? When did that shift? Well, uh, so I was 12 when uh, the communism fell, mm -hmm. uh, which means that I actually went to high school immediately when they started to study computer science. And my parents insisted that that's what I had to do. And I was, I was studying a lot of math and physics and, of course, computer science. But uh, even though that was my main specialty, I was just not a big fan of it. I was a very good student and a very good, uh, very good in high school and both in college later. Mm -hmm. But it was just not my thing. I thought it was boring and, uh, you know. So yeah. there was absolutely no sign that I will end up in the tech space ever. Absolutely. I mean, that's like not what you would think would happen afterwards. No, no, no. So sure. where does your entrepreneurial drive come from then? Did you have any role models or what sort of triggered that entrepreneurial interest in you? I think my first role model was my mom. Um, I grew up with two amazing parents, but they were very different. So uh, my mother was by far the most entrepreneurial one in the family, a very strong woman with an amazing work ethics. And I still believe both me and my brother, we're both entrepreneurs, by the way, we got this from her. So she would be the kind who would work in the hospital like 10, 12 hours. But then in the evening, he would go, she would go to actually take care of people with cancer to, to give morphine. Mm -hmm. And then everything was flawless at home. Um, she was very uh, clear that You know, in our family, there was a strong focus on education, both from my mom and my dad. Mm -hmm. And I think she was the first role model of that kind. Like, you know, we, we used to say she could have been a general in the army. But then it was also the fall of the communism. You need to understand Romania suddenly became from a communist country, a country where people actually could start their own businesses. And people of my age started witnessing this. So suddenly it was possible to open like a restaurant or a hotel. And for the first five to six years, that was quite, it was like a whole world opening up in front of us. So a lot of Romanians or Eastern Europeans of my age, mm -hmm. I think they get that drive from those times. And then, of course, later, you know, the, the college story and, uh, and the fact that I ended up in a startup very early in my career. I think it, they, all these things contributed to where I am today. It's a mix that basically mix. Yes, for, for influenced sure. you. But your mom seemed to be a very important role model and influenced this she was. strong image of a strong woman. She was woman, for right? sure. And she was also very tough on me and on my brother as well. And I think this helped me a lot because we had to leave our parents home when we were 14 to go to better schools. Again, my wow. family was obsessed with education. So to be sent out in the world to actually be on your own feet when you're 14, imagine... Like That's I have tough. nephews now who are in their 14s or 15s. I, I can't imagine them leaving their parents' home. But um, that was uh, an experience that helped us to actually become very self-reliant very early in our life. And we were educated to be able to do that from very, uh, from very early age. Well, I, I can imagine that when you're going through that as a child, basically, yes. now... It's quite Looking an experience. Back, no, it's, it's a great education, a great path. But when Absolutely. you're in that as a child, that must have been very tough. It was traumatic in a way, you yeah. know, because we were, we were basically children living uh, far away, the majority of our time during the year, far away from our family. 
So we would we would see our parents back in holidays, but other than that, you know, it was school and it was a lot of other activities that was very specific to those times. Mm-hmm. Also, the educational system was very tough because it was still in very much in many ways connected to the previous system. So we used to study like even 10 hours a day and uh, yeah, it was tough for sure. Different times. Yes, absolutely. So I feel in a way I, I grew up at the intersection of two very different worlds. Absolutely. And then you actually also founded your company, Aura Chain. It was back in 2009. First of all, why was the timing right to start your company in 2009? So that was the, I would say, the pivot company that later gave birth to Aura Chain. That was the legacy business we have built for a custom solutions. Mm-hmm. So in 2009, uh, this was the year when we actually um, started the Swiss company. But before that, four years before, we started a company in Bucharest, Romania. And from the very beginning, we were very focused on um, implementing very complex software solutions for the oil and gas space. So we've had some of our largest clients in 15 European countries, and we were using some of the uh, tech stacks from IBM and OpenText and other large Oracle and other large vendors. So that was the moment when we started to learn technology by the book, I would say. And that was the moment when we started to get a lot of international awards for what we were doing, especially from IBM United States. So this was what helped us to open up a whole international market ahead of us. Mm-hmm. But that was, again, as I said, a legacy business, which lasted for more than 10 years before we have uh, started Orache. And then at this legacy business that then pivoted and led to the foundation of Orache, you actually had co-founders back there. Exactly. How do you meet your co-founders? So... I would say he was the founder of the legacy business, Cornell. He's the one who discovered me, so to so to speak. I was 24. I was recently graduated from college. I was working in PR, in public relations, in a software company. He was the vice president uh, of that company. And uh, as a PR um, responsible, I had to understand very well the whole range of subjects within that tech company. And by far, I was very fascinated by by the software department, which uh, handled a lot of um, complex client implementations. So I had to attend to all of their internal meetings. And I, I have to admit, I was in PR, but I didn't understand that that well. So I think I would understand like 20, 30% of what they were discussing. And so I became very mesmerized with this. But I was, according to Cornell, I was a very fast learner. And he was the one who saw potential in me. Mm-hmm. But not just in me, we were like five, six people, young people. And later when he founded the company, he invited us to join in that company. So we started that company, five people actually, mm-hmm. and three of us are still working together today. One is the CFO and one is the chief technical officer. So wow. um, that was the beginning. Yes. And I remember the first condition. He only had one condition when I switched careers from PR to tech. Mm -hmm. Whatever happens in the first six months, I cannot leave. I cannot give up. So I spent the first six months learning software modeling languages like UML, if you're familiar with this. Um, Unified modeling language is one of them. Then later, Mm -hmm. uh, business process modeling notation. So I learned it by the book. Then I I studied in Vienna. I did some crash courses on compliance management for Sarbanes-Oxley. So in a sense, that was really what laid the foundation for for my entrepreneurial career that followed. And how did you, you know, sort of get into that learning curve? Because we we heard before, 
technology, computer science, that was not a, a big interest of yours. It so wasn't, but I loved, I loved software modeling okay. because it helps you to model a functional reality in a way that it matches a digital applica software application. Mm -hmm. So I became mesmerized with this. Remember, I did have a strong academic background. So to me, that was like a good uh a good way to learn something that I suddenly became very passionate about. So I was a business analyst, business consultant, a functional analyst. Uh, then I became a software architect. Then I was a project manager. And then I started to become a business developer for the overall business. So I started to be involved in the international business expansion. And that's when I realized I had a good mix for developing business, not just for operationalizing a business. And that's what I think uh, created the profile of the future CEO in me. Exactly. So that was then also yes. when you developed that skill set. Exactly. You saw all the different departments, basically. Exactly. Exactly. Then you felt now is the ti right time yes. to actually start my own I company. I felt I understood how to build a software business from A to Z. Because even today, in our chain, I understand everything. I mean, you can put it with a software architect and I would sure. understand what he's saying. Sure. I know how to ask the right questions. But mm -hmm. then if you put me in the international space, be it about, I don't know, meeting a partner or a strategic client or an investor, I know how to reflect that reality of the business in a way yeah. that makes sense for those people. So it's, it was quite a journey, to be honest. I can imagine. But again, it was basically part of the education Absolutely. that led you to that where you are today. That was my entrepreneurial uh, roadmap. And then later I did a PhD, not because it's requested today, especially mm -hmm. in the uh, for an entrepreneur, but because I felt I had something to say from a practitioner yeah. uh, in the academic world in a way that could help other people relate to it. So that was the only time in 18 years of my entrepreneurship when I took a break for approximately six months mm -hmm. when I was living in New York and I was finalizing my thesis. So I, I, I did a three-year PhD like everybody else, but I've been um, um, a CEO with a full-time job. Right. So when I finally had to, to, to finalize my thesis, I took a small break and I was living in New York and I was literally writing my thesis in, in the way I always envisioned. I would, I would say things to the world. Wow. Yeah, again, speaking up, right? We see of course, the red yes. line in your CV yes. right there. Yes, speaking up. Then please also share a bit how you then actually created the spin-off Aura Chain out of the previous business, because that's a very interesting setup. How did you execute that? Well, so the previous business was a business that I've grown from Europe to North America, Australia, and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. uh, at one point, because we've always been one of the top two global IBM partners in the digital process space, IBM um, invited us to set up this joint venture with them for the Middle East. And that was like nine years ago, nine, ten years ago. So we ended up having all the local banks as client. And, you know, if you are familiar a little bit with the Gulf Central countries, you would understand how tech savvy they are. And that's a space where actually a lot of vendors experiment or test a lot of the high-end technologies. So okay. if you're looking at Europe, it's much more conservative. Yeah. North America is a very mature market, but still they will not experiment the way they, uh, that the Middle Easterners will do. But the Middle Eastern uh, countries, I think, because they have small populations and people who are young, young populations who are very tech savvy, mm -hmm. I think the competition between banks, it's really difficult because the only way they can retain clients is if they are very digital. You, you understand? Yeah. So yes. for a tech vendor, that's the perfect space to really start 
um, developing, you know, highly innovative solutions. So that's what we've been doing. We ended up having virtually any any local bank and uh, as a client. And while we were doing this, because those were usually complex projects with long implementation cycles and combining a lot of technologies, I had this aha moment, you know, that the market was shifting. And in reality, that clients were no longer willing to pay uh, multi-million dollars for digital projects, you know, for software projects that take nine to 12 months. And at the same time, because we were using the latest technologies, we knew the industry allows you to use more configurable platforms, what today is called as low code, right? Fortunately for us, by then we have um, developed like four pieces of IP of intellectual property, which were highly awarded by both IBM and OpenText in the US for innovation. Mm-hmm. And because I manage a company of brilliant tech people, we we had like, uh, you know, a few brainstorming sessions and we realized we were able to, to basically build a new product that was leveraging those components that we were using as accelerators for mm-hmm. our custom solution projects in a new product. So then easy to do, to, to say than, than, than do, right? So uh, I, I realized to do this switch, we needed funding. So I was able to raise the first 25 millions as Series A, which were from the beginning meant to serve for building the product. Understanding the product was non-existent back then. Right. So we used those uh, that funding to actually switch from the custom solution business to a product company to completely uh, set up a new company mm-hmm. to do an asset transfer of key staff and, um, you know, everything that was used as foundational knowledge for the future product. And then to basically start building a SaaS company. And for those who are familiar with SaaS uh, companies, they understand this is a very different animal from a custom solution business. So the first one who did that was me. And I ended up uh, spending a lot of time with a lot of VCs from the United States to understand Mm -hmm what it takes to build a B2B SaaS company. Because again, there is a big difference between B2B and B2C SaaS companies, right? So I think we did it the right way looking back because from the beginning, we knew that the first ingredient that's required is uh, a scalable product and a scalable Mm -hmm. business model. So we paid a lot of attention to those ingredients that ensure future scalability. And that's something a bit unusual because if you're looking at startups, usually they do not, um, you know, founders, startup founders, usually they don't build companies with the idea of scalability in their heads from the beginning. They're just focusing on the product. But because I consider myself a business builder, to me, that was my main contribution to make sure that the, the actual business will be very scalable later after the product market fit stage. For me, it's very impressive what you just described. You basically saw a problem and the need with your existing customers and then built a solution to tackle that problem. Exactly. I also wonder with the structuring, you know, creating a spin-off out of an existing company, did you also, you know, have any tough trade-offs to make there to say, hey, you're also a shareholder in the new company or anything of that sort to make it work? Absolutely. So first of all, the first trade-offs you're making when you're switching from a custom solution provider to a SaaS company is that the whole knowledge and the whole investment goes into the product, yeah. no longer in the client project, mm-hmm. right? Because you're supposed to focus entirely on building the product and uh, significantly decrease um, the services for the clients, right? Yeah. Which it's something that we've done by moving all those services to partners around the world. 
But then it takes also a lot of knowledge in terms of how you build a product, how you choose the tech stack in the front end, in the back end, how you build a microservices based architecture. So yeah, of course, this is work being done by the tech people. But you know, when you're building the product at the same time, and you're also testing the market, and you're looking at your total addressable market, that's quite a hard balance to achieve at once. And I think that was, you know, the first two years were by far the most difficult for us as a management team, mm -hmm. because we had to make sure we do the right combination of all these areas, Absolutely. right? So we were building the first product releases, but we we're also testing the product in North America, in Europe and the Middle East as well. You know, to make sure we constantly fine tune that product before it even, uh, I would say, reached the first mature release. So we, we basically, we, we took feedback from the market early on. This episode is sponsored by Startup Nights 2022. On November 3rd and 4th, you'll have the chance to showcase your startup, get inspired, meet investors, and network with like-minded peers at the sixth annual edition of Startup Nights in Winterthur. Check out startup-nights.ch to learn more and register for the event. And I also wonder, before we, we continue talking about the challenges, who are actually your clients and what is the exact specific problem that you solve for of them? Of course. Thanks. That's a great question. Because if you're looking at Aurora Team, we are a horizontal platform, mm -hmm. which essentially means we serve all kinds of clients and all kinds of industries. But in terms of our go-to-market approach, we are very focused currently on financial services. So it's not because the platform doesn't allow us to serve other industries. It's more like of a, I would say, a strategic a strategy when it comes to, to, to go-to-market. Yeah. It's a strategic approach. Um, low code in general, before we even talk about what Oracin does, it sorts out an important uh, problem for a lot of clients. It allows them to achieve quick time to value by basically rapidly deploying digital applications without the need to code, which in essentially means it reduces technical debt. Mm -hmm. It reduces the dependency on, I would say, given the short shortage of skills in the market, you, you understand how important this is by Absolutely. definition. Yeah. But it, then it also increases agility of that business because if the implementation cycle are significantly decreased, it means those companies, those clients have the possibility to actually um, operationalize those applications for real-time value very early on. Mm -hmm. But then it also helps them to achieve faster change management because if those applications are being developed on configurable platforms, meaning by visual configuration, it means that any change is easy to do right. via configuration, right? Mm -hmm. So this, in uh, in return, it increases the agility of that business. So it's real-time, it's, it's real business value. Aura chain is different in the space, understanding that there are different types of low-code platforms. And I think that's what creates a lot of confusion into the market. But Aura chain is different because we are, by any definition, an enterprise-grade platform, meaning we are very suitable for applications with high level of complexity and for enterprise-grade clients, meaning we automate core business, but at the same time, with a, with a lot of easiness in creating these apps. Mm -hmm. Usually it's a trade-off. You're either a highly configurable platform, but we, you end up with limitations when, mm -hmm. it, when it comes to the complexity of the applications you can develop, or you're highly enterprise-grade, highly extensible, meaning you still do a certain level of coding, but it means you're not as configurable as a low-code for right. small complexity apps. 
Make sense? Yeah, makes sense. We are the, I would say, I'm proud to say we are the best balance of both. And in, in that regard, do you have an example of an application or something that your clients built? I have with many. Your, yeah, tell I me one. I can give you the example of a Swiss bank who basically mm -hmm. purchased Aura Chain um, three months ago. They went live with Lombard credits for uh, credit uh, applications for high net worth clients four weeks later. And by the time we had like a status, I had like a status meeting with their management, we realized that their team who are trained by us built 10 more back office applications without us not even knowing. That's great. Now, if you're familiar with the traditional development, this would have never been possible yeah. before. So 11 apps in like less than three months. I think it's, it's amazing. And that's fantastic because then from a bank's perspective, you can either improve things very fast or also test new offerings. Or identify new sources of revenue. And that's the right. case of this bank. Yep. Exactly. So basically they launch new offerings. That's fantastic. That's really a game changer in the banking it industry. Is, it is because basically we provide our clients with the ability to um, generate new sources of revenue. Absolutely. That's important. And talking about Switzerland, your company is also based here in Switzerland. It is. Why was that the right step for you? Back in 2009, uh, it seemed like the right thing to do as a, you know, for an entrepreneur coming from Eastern Europe and trying to conquer the world. Today, there are many other options in terms of countries. Mm -hmm. I've got to say, to me, Switzerland uh, has been like our, my adoptive country as an entrepreneur, and it still is today. And that's why I'm so grateful to this country, because I found a place and an ecosystem of people who are who are helping me to actually build this international business. At the same time, though, we are an international business. So actually, we bring revenue in Switzerland from other countries more than we generate within Switzerland. Mm -hmm. So the majority of our client base are from other parts of Western Europe or um, Middle East or, or North America now. We Got just it. launched our North American operations three months and a half ago. Fantastic. And did also the neutrality of Switzerland or, you know, the, the quality that label of Switzerland? That was the first reason why okay. we started here. Yes, yeah. because uh, coming from Eastern Europe, we thought this is the best country to uh, where we could actually fulfill our dream yeah. of setting up uh, our future international tech business. And coming here from abroad and starting a company here, what was or still is missing or lacking or ask differently, what can Switzerland improve to make the conditions and the business world for startups more friendly? Setting up the business was very easy for us. We yeah. found a lot of support from the authorities and from the local ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, becoming a company that serves Swiss customers was a very different situation. Okay. And actually, if anything, we ended up investing a lot in the first year in trying to penetrate the Swiss market and nothing really panned out. So ultimately, we ended up tackling North America immediately, even with the legacy business, because we found a market that was very responsive to our offerings, while Switzerland was more traditional back then. But then becoming successful internationally helped us to actually build a name within Switzerland, obviously. So <laughs> but everything what you, happened for a reason, I guess. Sure. But what do you think? Why was it so difficult to first get a foot in the door with Swiss businesses? Were they just, <laughs> they wanted to see traction or results first? Or were they just like not open to, you know, English pitches, for example, or anything? Can I be very honest with sure. you, Silvan? On how many Swiss companies do you see that headline, you know, Swiss made since 1800s? 
Many. Many. Yeah. <laughs> so you get my point. I think it's a cultural thing. I think things yeah. have changed lately, especially ever since with the Crypto Valley movement and stuff. But back then, trust me, it was like Mission Impossible. <laughs> so it took us a year to invest and to learn. But then we immediately uh, shifted our interest towards other markets. And then the whole world changed in the last years, especially the tech space. So right. now it really, you know, you're accepted everywhere. Regardless of your roots, regardless of your offerings, if you do a good job, if you have a good, good product, and if you understand that market, chances are you can succeed. But back then, it was really different. <laughs> I can imagine if I was in, in your shoes, you know, like you try to enter this market so hard, you invest one year. It's hard somehow... is an understatement. Yeah, I can imagine. It was really <laughs> terribly hard. <laughs> but then it doesn't work out. You don't really close the clients. Yes. Why did you continue? Why did you not give up there? This goes back to my roots, you know? Okay. I'm not a fearless person because being fearless, it's hard for people. But I'm by far, I think, the strongest person, the most resilient and the more persistent person I know. I just never give up. <laughs> so to me, I was like, I'm either going to make it or I'm going to die doing it. So <laughs> ultimately we made it. But I can tell you the first four years were very hard, both for me and for my co-founders and for my overall team. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the other co-founder joined, uh, who's North American, he joined the company, was ultimately what helped us. Because Jonathan has, you know, by, by any definition, he's that American with all the knowledge that was required in terms of business development, sales and marketing. And he was the one who basically completed a dimension that was completely missing mm -hmm. within our team. Yeah. We were a group of, I think, very smart people who were very passionate about technology and we were great at implementing clients, but with not great knowledge about conquering markets, opening up, you know, new, new horizons. And for sure, we didn't understand much about sales and marketing back then. So Jonathan was was amazing, amazing in this regard because he helped us filling this gap. And by, by him joining, the three of us, the three co-founders became, I would say, a complete puzzle. And then what's really interesting, you know, Switzerland didn't work, so you were forced to go international. Yes. Very, very inspirational story. But at the same time, while doing so, you know, going to North America, the Middle East, but also South Africa. Yes. You it's, were still working yes. on product market fit at the same time. Yes. You briefly mentioned that before. Yes. How did you exa exactly execute that? Because that's a very, very tough thing to do all at the same time. It was easier for us than it would be for an entrepreneur who didn't have an international business before. Okay. The fact that we were international before and we understood those markets very well and we've been very successful yeah. was what helped us to actually test those markets with a new offering. For us, it was a new product, definitely, mm -hmm. but it was a familiar space. I mean, if I go to Dubai today or Qatar or Bahrain, I feel like home. If I come to Switzerland, I feel like home. If I go to Vienna, if I go to London, I'm home. Right. If I go to Australia, to a certain extent, I feel like home. So South Africa, to be honest, is a market we started uh, to have a presence in uh, with or actually not with the previous business. Mm -hmm. But all the rest of the world were areas where we did the business before. And when you do it for more than 10 years, you, you really learn a lot. Yeah. And you learn a lot from the previous mistakes. You know what not to do. Mm -hmm. Now, coming back to your question about combining product market fit with, with testing multiple markets at the same time, this could be risky business, yeah, right? Sure. But we had that confidence that the product was was about to become a great product. And the earlier we get market feedback from multiple territories, the better. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So again, the fact that we were familiar with those markets helped, but at the same time, the fact that we knew it's ideal to test that product, not ideally, not in just one market. Like if we did it just in Switzerland or Eastern Europe, I don't think we would we would have understood early on, do we really have, can we become a global company? But now we can answer this question. Yeah. Absolutely, we're going to be a big player in the local space globally. So that's a question we can answer today already. And did your network from before you said you made learnings because you had experience in these different markets, did you also have a network of potential clients that you could access? We don't have the same clients. None of those clients ended up being our clients for our product. Okay. (laughs) But we leveraged all the knowledge. And for sure, uh, my network as an entrepreneur helped in getting the funding to actually build the startup mm-hmm. more than in actually getting new clients. Okay. The way we started getting new clients was by actually applying pure SaaS principles. And that's something we've been doing all along in 2020 and 2021. So we understood day one that we have to apply to build a business for growth following specific metrics. Mm-hmm. And when you follow those metrics, when you know how to build a sales and marketing engine, when, you, when you're looking at your conversion rates from funnel to qualified pipeline and to your closing rates, that's when you start understanding how you're selling and if you're doing a good job in various markets. I'm very interested to learn more about these SaaS metrics that you were focusing on. So can you elaborate a bit more on that? It's a science and an art at the same time. It's a science because I believe the the best area where you can learn these concepts from are still, it's still the Silicon Valley movement from North Mm -hmm. America. They are just great at building SaaS businesses. But it's an art because... You know, if you're looking at the four stages of a, of a tech company, which is product development, product market fit, initial sta- uh, scaling, and then rapid scaling, mm-hmm. you have to apply different metrics for different stages. So early on, your client retention, it's much more important than your ARR growth, right? I would say uh, at the same time, your gross margin is much more important because it shows your ability to scale further on because you're not going to have the growth you're expecting for three or four years. That's right. that's the that's a standard in SaaS. But if you don't have good gross margin from the beginning, it means there's either something wrong with your product or with mm-hmm. the way you're serving your clients. So today I'm looking at five metrics, if you want me to be very yeah, specific yes. <laughs> at the risk of boring you. So of course, ARR growth is important because mm-hmm. it shows your market traction. So we're looking to achieve 3x growth year by year. Well. Uh, then it's our net dollar retention. Net dollar retention means our ability to upsell to our current client and this usually has to be at least 140 percent and we are there we are way above there actually which shows a great adoption of our product yeah and people expand with you it's the land and expand concept that's so important for the SaaS business right for the SaaS space the third one is CAC payback uh basically the the timeline for uh, recuperating our cost of client acquisition Mm -hmm. which ideally needs to be between seven months to 12 months the fourth one is the cross margin in the SaaS space is if you're below 70 75% you're not doing a great job we're over 90 right and um, what else am I missing so I said net dollar retention ARR growth um, gross margin uh, CAC payback and um, I think actually these are the four key ones not the five ones makes a lot of sense I also like the range that you're tackling there I think that goes very well hand in hand with the Silicon Valley philosophy of course, but there is a fifth one which now in recession matters. Okay. It's the burn multiple. Of and course. I strongly advise entrepreneurs who are between Series A and Series B to look at their burn multiple. What does it mean? It means you have to stay between one to maximum two compared to the revenue you're projecting into a year. Yep. 
But that's only valid for recession. Yeah. Otherwise, you otherwise focus on growth, you right? You focus just on growth. Yeah. Exactly. And you mentioned the four stages. Where do you see Aura Chain oh, located right now? Oh, we are right definitely now? during initial scaling. So we are yeah. post product market fit, and we are during initial scaling. So we're still fine tuning the business a lot in sure. order to achieve uh, rapid scaling because we're building for growth. And also, if you look at the reports, there was one um, that basically says. 80% of the global businesses will be using some form of low-code tools by the end of this year. Yeah. So perfect market for you, perfect growth scenario for you. Perfect momentum. Exactly. Yes, so exactly. we also wonder what's going to be your next priority? What are your things that you're going to be working on over the next years? So there are two areas. Of course, it's it's really about growing in, uh, in the current markets and in new markets. Yeah. Uh, but from a product perspective, it's really about innovating more. So um, in case I haven't mentioned, and I know I haven't, uh, I think what really makes us unique in the low-code space is that based on our knowledge, we are the only low-code platform that combines digital process with DLT, with blockchain. So this element of uniqueness opens our our product towards business-to-business use cases that combine blockchain with other technologies, right? So when it comes to innovation, um, 2022 and beyond is really a lot about increasing our capabilities to generate code automatically for various type of blockchains because we consider ourselves blockchain agnostic so we are like a top layer that sits on top of various type of dlts Mm -hmm. but it's also about embedding ai capabilities especially um in a way that can help us our clients benefit uh, when they are in production with various types of applications like for instance for straight through processing for um processing certain types of transactions in a way that allows them to avoid human intervention, right? Uh, Also on the the innovation area, we, this year we are launching uh, our PLG line, product-led growth line, which essentially is a bottom-up way of going to market Mm -hmm. by launching a freemium that it's uh, very much focused on the experience of our app creators. Now, we use it for two reasons, both uh, first as an expand arm for our current clients and partners to evangelize more app creators and to adopt Origin as a, uh, as a platform, but also because we are obsessed with constantly improving the experience of our app creators. So we're using mm-hmm. machine learning tools who actually measure their overall experience in Oratin as a platform and constantly help us to improve the product. And everything is automated from the day they sign up Mm-hmm. until they become activated users, meaning when they start building real apps and until they become paying users. We actually gather all that data. And that's in how you want to enter the rapid growth scale. It's rapid growth, but it's also uh, achieving what we call signal liquidity. Are you familiar with the concept? I'm not, no. All right. So if you're watching Netflix, you know, yeah. Netflix knows about you at any point in time, three things. Mm-hmm. What did you watch? For how long you watched it? And what's your next pick? Which essentially, which is essentially what we call signal liquidity, meaning the ability to have real-time feedback about the client behavior. This leads Netflix in a situation where they have like 97% client retention. And that's the dream of any SaaS business. Yeah. To make a joke, a woman of my age has bigger chances to get divorced or to have a terminal disease than to cancel her Netflix subscription. <laughs> <laughs> but that's signal liquidity, right? right. So in Oratin, we are obsessed with signal liquidity. Kidding aside in a way that allows us to constantly understand what makes our app creators stick mm-hmm. and really consider our product sticky. Oh. And, uh, and, and, and that's important. That's important for growth. And it allows you to grow, um, to achieve what we call virality. 
Now, if you're having a go-to-market approach that it's entirely enterprise sales-based, meaning top-down, mm -hmm. you cannot achieve this. But if you combine these two types of go-to-market, top-down and bottom-up, chances are you're going to become the biggest player. It's going to be very powerful. <laughs> In the space, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. So certainly very exciting times ahead of you. And to wrap up today's conversation, we also have prepared some rapid fire questions oh, for you. We're already wrapping up. I didn't even realize when the time passed. <laughs> so basically, I give you either a choice of different options or a quick question, and okay. you have to answer in one sentence. All right. Are you ready? Absolutely. So first one, Romania or Switzerland? Both, but for two different reasons. Okay, tell me. All right. So I do believe Switzerland functions like a Swiss watch. So it's a, it's a highly disciplined country and it's highly predictable. And I love this part. That side of me loves this part of, mm -hmm. of Switzerland. Romania, though, has still that Latin vibe. You know, I was born in, in that country and it's still home to me in many ways. So both, sure. but for different reasons. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Five. Tech or business? Business. That's an easy choice for yes, you. Yes, it's, it's my comfort zone. What makes you feel at peace with yourself? Today, the idea that what gives me, that my, my idea of self-worth, it's not entirely uh, just about my level of entrepreneurial success. I'm much mm -hmm. more than that. Until two years ago, I would have given you a very different question to this, uh, different answer to this question. What, what changed? Um, Okay, so first of all, I think but when I decided to become an entrepreneur because of my background and the history I just told you about, mm -hmm. I created my own universe based on my own rules. And that was the universe where I, I, I knew I could shine and I could, I could build great stuff. Mm -hmm. But then later in my life, I understood that my life is much more than this. And that's great for my uh, entrepreneurial side but because it gave me the relaxation I need to keep building, you know, without operating in fear. So my advice usually to younger entrepreneurs is that they have to stop operating out of fear of failure. Because you know, failure, it's something most probably you, you may not avoid in your life in of general. Course. So why do this? I see this with a lot of entrepreneurs. And what helps you to get rid of that fear of failing? Is it more balance in your life or what is it? It is the fact that suddenly I understand, I understood I'm much more than mm -hmm. an, an entrepreneur and my identity as a human being has a larger dimension. But it took a lot of work with me, with sure. myself, and it took a lot of, um, I would say, I gave more time to personal growth than I did before in the last yeah. years. And I love this topic. So just one more follow-up question. Sure. What, what are then the other areas, you know, that you pull into your personality to be more balanced and not only focused on business alone? I, my biggest sense of accomplishment comes from my ability to help people, regardless if it's about guiding them through their careers or just helping them overcoming life hurdles. So mm -hmm. that's one dimension that gives me, a, um, I would say, the highest degree of accomplishment. Yeah. But then it's really about understanding who I am in general as a human being and how I can serve the others, right? And mm -hmm. that's beyond my identity as an entrepreneur. So that's changed. That changed, but only after I became like 42. Okay. <laughs> and the last question for you today, what kind of team do you like to work with? Oh, the team I currently work with, <laughs> which is a perfect mix of highly diverse people with highly complementary skills. Yeah. And that's the team I think any entrepreneur should have. Fantastic. Adela, thank you so much for thank coming on the well. show. All the best, lots of success, and I'm sure Thanks we'll be in much. touch in the future. Thank you, Silvan. Thanks for inviting me.
We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.